Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are currently engaged in a verse-by-verse Bible study of the Gospel of Matthew. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. This morning is message number 75 in our study of the book of Matthew. (coughs) I know that months ago, well gosh, that would be more than a year ago, when we began the book of Matthew and began our verse-by-verse, chapter-by-chapter study of the book of Matthew, I know that there were a good many people who wanted to hear Matthew taught because they were anxious to get to Matthew 24. And it only took us 75 weeks to get here, but we are finally at Matthew 24. Now, last week, we did a little prophecy primer, or prophecy primer, for you British folk. And we looked at how prophecy generally works, how the Old Testament prophets spoke in huge swaths of time. And how they would oftentimes compress events that were both near and far into a single prophecy, sometimes into a single sentence. Prophecy is a major component of the scripture, and yet prophecy is a source of a great deal of confusion in many religious circles. And usually the reason for the confusion is that people have a tendency to separate New Testament prophecy from Old Testament prophecy, which is why last week we took the time to just briefly look at how some of the Old Testament prophets operate, how the language is used. Much of the modern confusion where prophecy is concerned is a result of people attempting to insert 21st century Gentile church concepts onto prophecies that really have to do with Israel 2,000 years ago or more. And so as we work our way through Matthew 24, I'm going to try to go slowly. I'm going to try to be as exacting as we can be. But the truth of the matter is some of it is a little tough to know exactly didactically what Jesus is referring to. And so in those places where we're not absolutely sure, we have to be willing to say that we're not absolutely sure. When it comes to future prophecy and eschatology, the phrase that I have used for the last several years is, I can tell you with great exactitude and specificity exactly what every passage in the New Testament means eschatologically the minute it happens. But up until it happens, we're all going to just kind of read the text and do some comparative work and do a little detective work and get as close as we can get. But prophecy is an important part of the Bible. A quarter of the whole Bible is prophetic in nature. Some people argue that if you just look at language, passages, big sections, that as much as a third of the entire Bible is prophetic in nature. So that means that prophecy is a really important part of the Bible. And there are some churches, denominations, traditions that avoid prophecy altogether. 
which means that you're avoiding a third of the Bible. I really don't know how you do that. But prophecy is so intrinsic to the Bible that I argue that it is one of the evidences, one of the proofs that this is, in fact, God's word. This morning as we were praying, I think it was Alex who said that watching the world get increasingly crazy, sinful, depraved, God-hating, rebellious, watching that is a confirmation of God's word. Even as the world gets increasingly incomprehensible in its hatred for all things holy and righteous, it still confirms what the Bible says, not only about human nature, but also about the way that the world is going to wax worse and worse. So even from a a fundamental understanding of who we are in our relationship with God, even that has a prophetic undertone to it. So you can't ignore prophecy because the future is coming and there's nothing you can do about that. And at some point in the future, Jesus is coming back. And pretty much all Christianity, with the exception of a few peculiar sects, believe that. They believe that Jesus is coming back to the planet at some point. And if you believe that, well, that's prophetic. He said he would. would, And that is eschatological. When we use the word eschatology, sometimes it worries people, sometimes it scares people because it sounds like a big word. All it means is eschatos means last, last things, the eschaton, the last stuff. Put logia with it, logos, words about. We're just talking about end time things. On our website, there is a series on eschatology that runs a hundred and something messages. And so in our study of Matthew 24, I don't intend to review all of that. But we will review the parts that are pertinent to what's in Matthew 24. I think that's good for introductory comments. Let's start at Matthew 24, verse 1. Now, these numbers, again, are sort of confusing because chapter 24, verse 1 begins with, and... And so you have to kind of go back a little bit and find out what it's an and to. What is that conjunction connecting chapter 24 to? Well, it's connected to the things that happened just prior to it. Jesus, throughout what we call chapter 23, has been denouncing the leaders in Jerusalem, telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the lawyers, telling them what hypocrites they are for their lack of understanding of God's word. And for their abuse of God's word, for their own aggrandizement and enrichment. And then finally, starting in verse 37 of chapter 23, Jesus then says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, speaking to the leaders there in Jerusalem, who kill the prophets and who stone those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. We talked about that at length two weeks ago. But then he makes this statement, and this is a prophetic statement. He says, Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name 
of the Lord. And from there we jumped to Zechariah 12 and we looked at the predictions from Zechariah of the return of Christ and how his feet are going to touch the Mount of Olives and the Mount is going to split in half and the prediction that Israel is going to look on him whom they pierced and weep as a mother weeps over her only child. Okay, well, that's all prophetic in nature. That all has to happen. This is Jesus saying two very important things. Number one, you're not going to see me again until you recognize who I am and until you admit who I am, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until you admit that David was speaking of me. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you're looking for. Until you admit that, you don't get to see me again. And that happened. He left the planet. And he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to turn his attention to Israel and they are going to undergo national repentance. A national internal change in perfect keeping with the new covenant that is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah in Jeremiah 31. That's all got to still happen. But the second thing is your house The word house there, as you know, means those people that you rule over. The example I use all the time is not just house of Israel, house of Judah, but in England right now, they're being ruled by the house of Windsor. Prior to that, the house of Tudor. So if we were going to say that Queen Elizabeth and her offspring are no longer going to be ruling, we would say that was the end of their house. Okay, so he is saying to them, this Jerusalem, this temple, This system that you rule over is going to be taken away from you and destroyed to such an extent that it will be left to you desolate. You're going to have nothing. Okay, now the disciples have overheard him say this. Two things. You don't get to see me till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And secondly, your house will be left to you desolate. Those two things have to happen. Now, last week, part of the reason that I took the time to show you how Old Testament prophecy works and that sometimes in a single sentence, sometimes in a single phrase, you will find predictions of things that happen right away intertwined with things that aren't going to happen for sometimes thousands of years. Well, Jesus just did that here at the end of chapter 23. Because when he said, your house is going to be left to you desolate, that may very well be a reference to 70 A.D. And he's saying this somewhere between 30, 33 A.D. So a mere 40 years later, indeed, Titus, the Roman general, and the Roman army is going to come in. It is going to break through the walls of Jerusalem, is going to destroy the temple, and indeed, not a single stone left on top of another. And so the house is going to be essentially left to them desolate. Jerusalem is going to be scattered. And so that may be a 40-year fulfillment of that prophecy. But the other thing he said was, and you won't see me again till you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. That hasn't happened, and it's been 2,000 years, and we're still waiting So Jesus predicted two things, and one happened right away, and the other hasn't happened yet. But I would argue that on the basis of the validity and the physicality and the literalness of the first one, that the second one has to be fulfilled in the same way. Because the same person said it. And he is going to come back. And they are going to recognize him. 
And there is going to be a national change and a national regathering and a national reestablishment of Israel as a nation. That was redundant. A national regathering as a nation. Department of Redundancy Department. Really, one person enjoyed that? I enjoyed that, but I'm alone here. That all has to happen, and I know it's going to happen because I can look at history and see where the first thing happened. Indeed, the leadership in Israel lost their leadership. Their house was left to them desolate. That happened in history, and we know it. That means the other thing has to happen. Jesus is coming back genuinely, physically. This same Jesus is coming back. You got it? Okay, so that is the context for reading and, chapter 24, verse 1, and Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. Now, we don't know what their motivation was really, except that they were pretty impressed with the buildings. Remember that they very seldom went into Jerusalem. In fact, for a large portion of Jesus' ministry, he no longer walked among the Jews. He went back up into the area, the Nazareth area, where he was born and raised. And so now he's come back to Jerusalem, and his disciples apparently are just really impressed by the magnificence of Herod's temple and the architecture and the buildings. They're really taken with it. And they point him out to him, since he has just said, that the Jews' house was going to be left desolate. They're pointing it out almost like, all this? Really? All this? You think all this is somehow going to be desolate? Look how grand it is. And he answered and said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. And indeed, that happened, 70 A.D. Turn over to Luke for just a second. Let's fill in a couple of blanks. And uh, while we're turning to Luke, Tom, since you're right there, turn to Mark 13.3 for a moment. The rest of us are going to go to Luke 19. Luke 19, right around verse 41. This is after Jesus' triumphal entry. This is Luke recounting the triumphal entry. This is when they came to him and said, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Make them be quiet. And he said that if they were silent, that the stones would cry out. Okay, this is the context. And when he approached, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, If you had known in this day, even you... The things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. That's really interesting. That proves yet again the absolute sovereignty of God. Many times I have said, as he was approaching Jerusalem, he said repeatedly to his disciples, I have to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to die. I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be scourged. He told them over and over what was going to happen. He told them what to expect. They didn't understand. They didn't get it. And so I've said repeatedly that God in his grand sovereignty made sure that there were people in Jerusalem who would hate him enough to kill him because it was determined before the foundation of the world that he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. 
And so he had to die, which meant that there had to be people who would kill him. But ironically, he gave them absolutely no cause to kill him. He did nothing but good. He told them about God. He taught them. He healed their sicknesses. He did nothing wrong. And yet, there had to be people there who would hate him enough to kill him. And so we're told here in Luke's writing that the reason that they hated him was because God hid it from them. If you had known this day, this is the day of his triumphal entry. Remember last week we looked at Daniel's 70 weeks, 69 weeks of years, then Messiah will be cut off. This is the culmination of Daniel's prophecy. This is the culmination of the 69 weeks of years. Daniel's prophecy has run its time exactly, and he has entered in riding exactly as was predicted of him on a donkey and on the colt of a donkey that had never been ridden on before. He is fulfilling prophecy over and over and over again, and they don't get it. And the reason they don't get it is because Jesus said, these things have been hidden from you. You don't understand what's happening. But if you had known, look at that language, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace. He came there to die in order to redeem the people of God. He came there to die to ultimately redeem Israel as a nation. And they rejected him outright and hated him. And it's because God was absolutely sovereign. Verse 43, for the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank, a way for them to climb the walls. They will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because... You did not recognize the time of your visitation. Okay, so Jesus has already predicted previously during the triumphal entry, he has already predicted that Jerusalem is going to fall. It's going to be destroyed. It's going to be crushed. We even read in verse 41 that he wept over it. He loved Jerusalem. Remember, this is the place that God deigned to place his own name. And yet, it's going to be utterly crushed and destroyed. The reason that it's going to be crushed and destroyed is because of their rejection of Christ, which is why he said, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. God himself, God incarnate, God in shoe leather, walking in human flesh was right here in your midst, and you rejected me. So you're going to be destroyed. And in the same breath, the reason they rejected him was because it was hidden from their eyes. That is sovereignty. There's no other way to read that and put those pieces together without understanding that God was working out his divine plan that he had foreordained since before the foundation of the world. And so he made sure that there were people there whose eyes were blinded so they would reject the Christ, so they would kill the Christ, and then God punished them for their rejection of the Christ. All of which plays into his divine plan because this also, when Christ was on the cross, you can go back to Matthew 24 now, when Christ was on the cross, this was also the inception of the new covenant. The old covenant was done with. And so the temple and the old covenant sacrifices and the law of Moses and everything that was wrapped up in what Jerusalem was at that time was done away with, swept clean. 
in favor of the new covenant of salvation by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. In other words, God made sure that Christ was preeminent in the religion of God. And everything else was wiped physically off the map in Jerusalem. So there was a reason, there was a purpose for why these things were happening, and yet he told them time and again. Do you not see these things? Verse 2 of Matthew 24, Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Verse 3 says, And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. I haven't forgotten about you, Tom. This is why you have Mark 13.3, because Mark tells us which disciples. Because this is a private conversation he's having, and that's important, because he's going to begin using the word you. And we have to know who you is, or you am, or you are. Who you be, <laughs> one of those. Mark 13.3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately. So who's the group? Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. Now, of course, Peter, John, James, no surprise. That's sort of the inside group always. That's the group that was with him at the Mount of Transfiguration. Those seem to be the, the closest, but Andrew is along with them. And when this conversation begins on the Mount of Olives, from the Mount of Olives, they're able to look across and see Jerusalem in the distance. So they've left Jerusalem. He has said that Jerusalem is going to fall. Not a single stone is going to be left on another stone. And then he is sitting privately with four of them, and they start this conversation. Now, throughout this passage, throughout this chapter, as I mentioned, He's going to use a plural form of the word you. And when he begins by saying you, expect this, you, you're going to, this is going to happen to you, the things that he makes reference to actually did happen to the disciples he's talking to. They were delivered up. They were killed. All of that. They were hated by all men for Christ's sake. That happened to them. But then at some point in the chapter, it becomes clear that very much like we saw last week with the various different prophecies that were predicting near things, at some point in this chapter, Jesus suddenly leaps to what's going to happen thousands of years later. And commentators argue about where exactly in this passage that takes place. But at some point, his you goes from you sitting right here in front of me to you as representatives of Israel. Remember the context. The context is about Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children and you would not. Or what we read from Luke, remember that this is all about Jerusalem and the people of Jerusalem. Remember what we read last week? These are prophecies about Daniel and Daniel's people. And Daniel's city. And Jesus is going to make that plain in a moment. So verse 3. And as he was sitting at the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately saying. Tell us when will these things be. And what will be the sign of your coming. And the end of the age. Okay they appear to have asked him two questions. The first question was. Well, what's going to be the sign of your coming? After all, you said that the Jews weren't going to see you anymore until they say, blessed 
is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So that means you're coming back. Okay, we, we get that. Apparently you're leaving. Apparently you're coming back. What's going to be the sign of your return? And, of course, if they know anything about the Old Testament, they know that there are prophecies about the appearance, the glorious appearance of Christ and the establishment of the kingdom. Which is why, I've repeated this many times, but that is why at the beginning of the book of Acts, after his resurrection, Jesus spends 40 days talking to his disciples and we're told exactly what they talk about. It says for 40 days they talked about the kingdom. So 40 days of talking about the kingdom and their question to him before he left was, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Because this is what they're interested in. Tell us about the kingdom. And apparently the kingdom happens when you return. Tell us about your return. When are you coming back? When are you establishing the kingdom? This is their question over and over again. When are we not going to be under the yoke of Rome? When are we going to be free people again? We've been under the yoke of multiple different kingdoms now, whether Babylon, whether Medo-Persia, whether the Greeks, whether the Romans now. When are we going to be reestablished as a kingdom? That's question one. And tell us about the end of the age, because he has made multiple references during his ministry to the fact that they are living in this present evil age, a good Pauline phrase there, but that there is an age to come. For instance, when, they, when the Pharisees asked him about marriage and thought that they could trick him, and they said, oh, there's seven brothers. And one married a woman and didn't raise up a child, and so his brother married and his brother married. All seven of them had her as a wife in the kingdom, in the future. How are they married? Who gets to be married to her? And he said, you err because you don't understand the power of God and you don't understand the scripture. And then he says, in this age, men marry and are given in marriage. But in the age to come, they're going to be like the angels. They're not going to marry or be given in marriage. So Jesus talked about this age to come thing. So they grabbed a hold of that and said, okay, we want to know two things, two things. Tell us when you're coming back, because that's going to be the whole kingdom thing. And tell us about the end of the age, because you keep talking about this new age, this great new age. Okay, when does that happen? These are very logical questions, by the way. If you'd been with Jesus and he'd been talking about this stuff, you'd be asking the same thing. Okay, when? They're very big on when. Will you at this time establish the kingdom for Israel, return the kingdom to Israel? When? When are you going to do these things? So what is going to be the sign of your coming? And what's the sign of the end of the age? Jesus answered and he said to them, here's the first thing. See to it that no one misleads you. He starts right there. How often have we seen Jesus repeatedly both encourage his followers and admonish the Jewish leaders because they didn't pay attention to what was in the word of God. He held the Jewish leaders guilty over and over and over again for not knowing the scriptures. And because they didn't know the scripture, they could be led away by every whim of doctrine. Anybody who would come along and say anything can gather a following. Tom and I moved out here from Los Angeles, and one of the, uh, the things that was obvious in any really big city, but in Los Angeles it was 
really uh, obvious, is that on every street corner you, you could find a religious nut. You could find some basket case that was out there saying that they had gotten a word from God and they had gotten some new revelation. They got, and what was even more fascinating to me wasn't that there was a crazy messianic character on every street corner. What was more astounding to me was that every one of them would have two or three followers. That was even more interesting. Some had hundreds of followers. Some had thousands of followers. And they were all out there making stuff up. And they would blame it on God or the Holy Spirit. And they would say that they are having a new revelation directly from God. I read a quote the other day that I really like. And I believe it's a John Owen quote. If not, I just falsely attributed it to Owen. But, and I can't quote it exactly, but I can certainly paraphrase it for you because it was brilliant. He said, uh, the reason we don't need new revelation is that it's either going to agree with the Bible or not. If it agrees with what the Bible has already said, we don't need it. We already have that. And if it doesn't agree with the Bible, we really don't need it. What's the point of new revelation? It's either going to agree or not. And so Jesus starts right out with, I'm leaving. And when I leave... There are going to be a lot of people telling you a lot of things. And they're going to try to lead you astray. And they're going to try to gain followers. They're going, to, they're going to try to get people to come over to their side, their way of thinking. Be careful. Don't believe them. Because some are going to say that they are the Messiah. They are the Christ. Now, by the way, this happened quite a bit in the history of Jerusalem and Israel. Israel was rife with false prophets and false messiahs. You can read about them in Jewish literature, the various different people who rose up and said, I'm the Messiah, follow me. So Jesus warned, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. So there's the first thing. I'm not going to be here to guide and direct you. But I've left you something. I've left you my word. We have the very word of God as a steering voice, as a guide, as a governor on our thinking and theology. And so the same way that Jesus throughout his ministry kept steering people back to the word of God, we who believe in Christ and who teach the word have to keep driving people back to what does the word say. That's the only safe place. That's the only safe harbor that we can that we can stay in and know that we're okay because it is easy for people to be drawn away by some new whim, some new doctrine, some new thing, some new experience, some new revelation because people are just naturally curious and people who won't spend the time it takes to read the Bible will flock to somebody who has some new revelation from God, some new hyper-spiritual mystery man. And people will line up behind him. Jesus knows that's coming, and so he warns right away. Since you've asked, let me tell you the first thing you've got to be careful of. Don't let anybody mislead you. Because many people are going to say, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Christ. Now, of course, when you get to the book of Revelation, we're introduced to a character who is known as the false prophet. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the occasional false prophet. But in the series of false prophets, there is going to be an ultimate false prophet 
who is going to be responsible for giving power and authority to the one that we know as the Antichrist. We might even get to that this morning, depending on uh, time. See to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will mislead many. Then, verses 6 and 7, I think have been sort of abused and misused in a lot of prophecy circles. Because it doesn't really say what a whole lot of people seem to think it says. But he says, you will be hearing about wars and rumors of wars. Remember, this is all about what's the sign of your coming and the age to come. And he says, well, here's the kind of stuff you're going to see. You're going to hear about wars, rumors of war. See that you're not frightened. For those things must take place, but that is not the end. You see that? Because there are a lot of prophecy teachers and prophecy books you can read that say that the increase of war on the planet is going to be a sign of Christ coming back, but he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, here's the sign. You want the sign of my return? It's going to be wars and rumors of wars. What he says is, there are going to be wars, and there are going to be rumors of wars, but that's that's not it. So don't get too anxious about that. Nation is going to rise against nation. That's actually the word ethnos. It's the word from which we get ethnic, ethnicity. In other words, it's going to be people group against people group. And we see that now, but we've always seen that. That's always been the case. Ever since Israel went into the land of Canaan and had to drive out Canaanites and fight with Moabites, we have seen people group against people group. So Jesus says that's going to happen. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. How many of you have seen prophecy preachers or read prophecy books that say there's been an increase of earthquakes lately? And so that's a proof that Jesus is coming back. And, and there's lots of wars. And there's, there have always been wars and earthquakes. These last two Wednesdays, we've been in the book of Amos as we've been looking at the minor prophets. And one of the ways that Amos marked the time of his prophecy is that he told us that it was two years after the earthquake. That was back then. There's there's always been earthquakes. There's always been war, rumors of war. There's always been nation against nation. That has always been the case. But that's not the sign. He's going to tell us what the sign is. And the sign is unmistakable. The sign starts when the sun and the moon go dark. That's a clue. He says that the coming of the Son of Man is going to be like lightning flashing from the east to the west. Everybody's going to see it. Everybody's going to know it. It's not going to be some minor thing. It is not going to be some natural thing. It's going to be a supernatural thing. When he returns, there's not going to be any question about the fact that he's back. So then he says, verse 8, he says, all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Now, the NASB added the word merely to try to emphasize the fact that Jesus was saying, that's not the important stuff. That's going to happen. The earthquakes, the wars, the rumors of wars, nation, nation, ethnos, ethnos, all that stuff's going to happen. But that's just the beginning of birth pangs. It isn't the, the delivery yet. So don't worry over that stuff. Instead, watch for the real sign which we'll get to probably next week. But I've certainly foreshadowed it. Verse 9, then they will deliver you. Okay, so now we have to talk about who you is there. 
Because I think he's still talking about the destruction. He has said that Israel is going to be left desolate. He has said that there's not going to be a single stone left on another. And they've asked him the question, when? And I think he's still talking about that. I think he's still describing the fall of Jerusalem stuff. And they're going to deliver you to tribulation. Okay, so we're going to have to talk about this word. That's the Greek word, thlipsis. Thlipsis is a very common word. You see it a lot in the New Testament, and it was used by the translators, the Greek translators who translated the Old Testament into the Greek language. They would use this word thlipsis. The essence of the word thlipsis means a, a squeezing or a compressing or pressure. The picture word for it is the way that you get juice out of grapes in order to make wine is that you put them in a wine press and you squeeze the grapes until the juice comes out, which is why we're going to read about the wine press of God's wrath, because it is that pressure, that squeezing, that, that pushing of God's wrath. That's what the word thalipsis means. But Jesus has also told his apostles that in the world they're going to have Tribulation. Now, our, our English word tribulation comes from a Latin word, tribulum. It just migrated into the English language as tribulation. Tribulum has a few other meanings and sort of pictures to it that include separating things through the process of beating, hitting. Uh, it's the word that was used if a woman would take a rug, hang it out, and beat the rug to get the dust out of it. Okay, well, then that rug was going through tribulum. And by the way, men can go out and beat rugs too. I didn't mean to make that a woman's chore. I'm just being careful here. So if you are trying to separate wheat from chaff, the way that you do it is you put it on the threshing floor, and then you thresh the wheat, which means to beat it until the chaff falls away from the kernel, the chaff falls through the screen, and you're left with the good kernels of wheat. Okay, so that process was known as tribulum. And Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulum. And that, I think, is a universal reality for all Christianity. All Christians for all generations have always undergone a certain amount of tribulation in this life and in this world. That's part of the package. Trouble's coming. Later, Jesus is going to speak of a time of trouble, a trouble such as never was or ever will be again. And when he speaks of it, He adds a modifier to the word thalipsis, and he calls it thalipsis megas, translated great tribulation. But then people have gotten a hold of that concept of a tribulation that is great, and in fact is greater than any tribulation that has happened on the planet, and they have given it the name great tribulation, and referred to the great tribulation as a sort of word of art so that we know what people are talking about when they say the Great Tribulation. But the reality is, Jesus never gave it a name. He didn't call it the Great Tribulation. Instead, what he said is, there is a time of tribulation coming, and it will be great. So, Great Tribulation. Do you understand that? Because as we go through chapter 24, we're going to have to continue defining terms 
And this word tribulation is one of those terms that people get a hold of and say, well, there is the tribulation and there is the great tribulation and there is the day of the Lord. Okay, day of the Lord is a specific phrase that in the weeks to come we are going to look at. It is a phrase that shows up a lot in the Old Testament and then Jesus picks it up in the New Testament because it already has a meaning. It already is a defined phrase, the day of the Lord. But tribulation, great tribulation, is describing a process, a series of events, but it doesn't have the proper name, the great tribulation. Do you understand that? Hold on to it. File it in your brain somewhere because it's going to become important in the weeks to come. You're going to be hearing about wars, rumors of war. See that you're not frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to trouble, to tribulation. And they will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. I think he's still talking to the apostles. That did happen to the apostles. With the exception of John, who lived to old age despite the fact that he had been on the Isle of Patmos for several years. He had been banished. There are stories of him being boiled in oil. We don't know if those are true or apocryphal. We know for a fact that he was banished to Patmos. But all of the others, you can read the listings in Fox's Book of Martyrs, but all of the other apostles died martyrs' deaths. And they were, in fact, hated. Because they didn't just die martyrs' deaths in Jerusalem. Thomas died down in southern India preaching Christ. They went out into the areas, like Jesus said, go into all the world and preach. And they did. They went out into all the known world and they preached and they were hated for it and they were killed. And so exactly as Jesus said, they're going to deliver you to tribulum, to tribulation, to thalipsis. They will kill you and you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will deliver up one another and hate one another. This happened in the early church between the Jewish persecution and the Roman persecution. There were lots of people who, in order to save their own lives, gave up other people, gave up their neighbors. It happened. Now, there's a phrase here that's translated, will fall away. Scandalizo. What word do you see in there? Scandal. It's right in the word. It just moved into the English language. So when it says many are going to fall away, it really means what they're going to do is they're going to scandalize Christians. They're going to speak evil of Christians. They're going to speak evil particularly of the apostles here and of other people who are believers. And the hatred is going to grow and they're going to hate one another. Okay, well, that all actually happened. So I still think Jesus is talking about the things that are building up to 70 AD and the persecutions of the early church. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. That happened. 
as I mentioned, as you go back and you read the early Jewish church documents, the church fathers, even if you read Josephus, you will read about false prophets. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's heart will grow cold. As Christianity was persecuted, as people hated Christians, as families turned on families, brother against brother, as that happened, Jesus could rightly say that lawlessness was going to increase. And most people's love grows cold. And then this very interesting phrase, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. And that's the moment at which we go, well, how does this apply? How does this apply to 70 AD? How does this apply to the people he's talking to? How does this apply to the four people that he's having this conversation with at this moment? Turn to uh, Matthew 10.22 for a moment. Let's see where else he said that and the context in which he said it. Turn to Matthew 10 because he has used this phrase before. When he sent the 12 out the first time to go out and preach and he gave them instructions, the instructions that included verse 5, don't go into the way of the Gentiles, don't go into any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And then as you go, preach saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, so freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey. That's a beggar's bag. Or even two tunics or two pairs of sandals or a staff to walk with. For the worker is worthy of his support. And into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and abide there until you go away. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come upon it. But if the house is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than it will be for that city. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men. Here it is. For they will deliver you up to the courts and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And you shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how you will speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who will speak, but it is the spirit of your father who speaks in you. And brother will deliver up brother to death. And a father is child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you shall be hated by all on account of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who shall be saved. But whenever they persecute you in this city, flee to the next. Truly I say to you, you shall not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Back to Matthew 24. I hope you see the parallels now 
when he says they're going to deliver you, verse 9, to tribulation and they will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and deliver up one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. So whatever that phrase means, whoever endures to the end shall be saved... Whether we're looking at it back in Matthew 10, whether we're looking at it in Matthew 24, it seems to have an immediate application, but it also seems to have this eschatological implication that there is an end coming and someone's going to have to endure to the end. And you're going to see that theme picked up as we continue through Matthew 24 and Jesus warns them to flee into the wilderness. And then we're going to look at Daniel saying that there's going to be people who are preserved, and they're going to be preserved for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. So there is a group that is going to be preserved to the end, a remnant of Israel that is going to be preserved to the end. And they are going to be, in a national sense, saved. Both saved from danger, saved from tribulation, but also saved into the new covenant. So right at this point in Matthew 24, suddenly the tone seems to change, where just like the prophets we looked at last week, Jesus is talking to these immediate four, but then some of the things he says seem to have these ripples, these implications that go out into the future. Anybody bored yet? Still hanging with it? Yep. All right, because now it's going to get thick and heavy. You ready? Verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end comes. Oh, good, he is finally directly answering a question. They said, what is going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? He has now said, okay, there's going to be earthquakes, and there's going to be wars, and there's going to be stuff. Okay, bad stuff's going to happen. That's not the end yet. Other bad stuff is going to happen. You're going to go into tribulum. You're going to be hated by all men, and you're going to be delivered up, and you're going to be killed. And that's not the end yet. And things are going to get really bad to the point where people are going to have to endure. Some people are going to endure to the end, and they're going to be saved. The first sign that he gives of the actual end is, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end shall come. All right, well, that has become... The key verse that has motivated evangelistic societies all over the world, it is also the verse that has motivated TBN to launch more satellites because they are convinced that once TBN covers the whole globe, Jesus is coming back because it will have fulfilled this verse. Except that there already is a fulfillment of this verse in the Bible. Unfortunately, people read it as when the gospel of the kingdom, by the way, that's a specific gospel. Remember what we read earlier, go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go into the way of the Gentile. Don't go into the way of the Samaritan. Go first to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and preach that the kingdom is present, is in their midst. It's the gospel of the kingdom. That is not the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is the good news of the kingdom that belongs to Israel. And that has to be preached to the whole world for what purpose? As a witness. I contend that it is a witness against the whole world. 
because it is a witness to all the nations, all the Gentiles, and it is the everlasting gospel of the kingdom of Israel. Hey, you want to see it? Sure you do. Of course you do. You want to see it? Yeah, I knew you did. Okay. Revelation 14, turn there. Keep your finger in Matthew. Revelation 14. Revelation 14 begins with reference to the 144,000. The 144,000 are specifically enumerated earlier in the book of Revelation. The 144,000 are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then each of the 12 tribes is named by name, except the tribe of Dan, because both Ephraim and Manasseh are each named. But the 144,000 couldn't be more specific. It's 144,000 Israelites, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Let's start at verse 6. After all these things, boy, we're, we're deep into Revelation by the time you get to chapter 14. A whole lot of stuff has happened, but now there's a culmination. There's this point at verse 6 of chapter 14. I saw another angel flying in the mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Okay, well, that's the sign of the end stuff. He's going to preach the everlasting gospel to all the nations. For what reason? As a witness against them. So the gospel is going to be preached to the whole world. How? Not by men. Not by TBN. Not by GCA being on the internet. It's going to be preached to the whole world when God himself sends his own herald to come and preach to the remainder of the unbelieving world in order to make them guilty. Here's what he says to them. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and the springs of water. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations to drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. That is not an uplifting message. That is not come to Jesus. That is you're guilty and you're nothing but guilty. Verse 9, and another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or his right hand, he will also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. There's that wine press idea, the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may be at rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Okay, so you've got angels from heaven, three of them, 
preaching this to all the nations on the planet, and it's a message of condemnation. Okay, well, I think that's what Jesus is talking about because he said, you want a sign of the end? When you hear that, you know the end is coming. And that's what we just read, that it is the announcement of the culmination of God's wrath coming onto the planet. In other words, what God has predicted, what God has prophesied as a definite sign of the end, God is also going to fulfill and satisfy. He is not leaving it up to human beings to get busy. Far too often people combine what we just read out of Matthew with the Great Commission, that it's the job of all Christians and churches to get out there and preach the gospel until the whole world has heard it. But I don't think that God is up there waiting until we get it right. I don't think he's checking his clock going, you know, if the church would just get busy, I could send you back, Jesus. But since they just refuse to spread the gospel to the whole world, I don't know what they're waiting on. I would love to send you back. But, no, there is a time. We're on a schedule. The times of the Gentiles is going to be complete. When the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, all of the time references in the Old and New Testament say that God is on a definite time schedule and a moment is coming when the fullness has come in, when he's going to gather his church and when he is going to send his angels to preach the gospel to the nations that are left on the planet as a condemnation against them for their rejection of the Son of God. That's coming. Yes? I thought gospel was supposed to mean good news. So why is this called the everlasting gospel or the eternal gospel? I always thought the good news was that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because it's not the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Remember a few minutes ago I said the gospel of the kingdom is not the gospel of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is the proclamation of the establishment of the kingdom of God with national Israel. That's the good news of the kingdom. That's what he said is going to be preached. He didn't say there's going to be an angel preaching, come to Jesus and believe in my death, burial, and resurrection. That would be the good news that Paul talks about, the gospel of Christ. But that's not what they're coming to preach. They're coming to preach the gospel of the kingdom. John in the book of Revelation refers to it as the everlasting gospel. This is always what God had intended. This was always the plan of God. Yes, sir. Would the gospel of the kingdom have to include Christ by nature that he's the king? So I mean, you couldn't exclude him from the gospel of the kingdom then, right? Right, but her question was what the angels said didn't even include anything about Jesus. How is that called the gospel? So yes, by extension, since Jesus is the king, the gospel of the kingdom includes him by extension. But you will notice that when he sent the 12 out to preach the gospel of the kingdom. When he said, don't go into the Gentiles, don't go into the way of the Samaritans, go preach the gospel of the kingdom. What they said was, the kingdom is among you. The kingdom is here now. They didn't say anything about Jesus. Right? So they said the kingdom is among you. They're talking about Christ is among you. Yeah. But they didn't name him by name. They didn't say, hey, Jesus, the king is here. But the gospel of the kingdom is all about the reestablishment of Israel and God keeping every promise he ever made to Israel throughout the Old Testament, all the stuff we've been reading on Wednesday nights. That is the good news of the kingdom. By the way, let me go one more step now since we said that. Who does the gospel of the kingdom apply to? To Jews and Israel, right? That's their good news. They're being punished because they didn't believe that. Exactly. 
That is the good news to Israel, the gospel of the kingdom, which is going to be preached to the whole world, all the nations that have followed the Antichrist, that have taken the mark, they are going to hear before it's all over God's declaration that this is all about Israel. Yes, sir? I got it's my birthday, so I get multiple things. Oh, <laughs> well. In, in the passage you uh, read in Revelation, the angels were in heaven preaching to those on, on earth, right? In, in Matthew 24 here, it says the gospel will be preached in the world. Is there a difference between preaching to from heaven and then? No. In Matthew 24? No, it's hard to argue from prepositions there. The gospel of the kingdom is going to be preached in the whole world or to the whole world or toward the whole world. So I don't think we can argue that the preposition that the preposition in the whole world is different than the gospel being preached from heaven to the world. I think it's the same outcome, right? It's still the world hearing it. Right. Yeah, you gotta be careful. This is something I actually learned from Jeff years ago, that you have to be careful about arguing from Greek prepositions because they're pretty broad. Yes? If I'm understanding correctly, between verses 9 and 14, we went into hyperspeed like you talked about last week. Yeah. Where, where did that happen? And, and just for those who weren't hearing last week, you said you, you get the New Testament times, New Testament times, New Testament times, and then suddenly, one verse later, you're 3,000 years ahead or whatever yeah. number of years it turns out to be. Yeah. So where did that happen in this 9 to 14? Where did we get the transition? Yeah. yeah. Uh, remember in my opening comments I said that commentators and theologians argue about where in this passage we make the leap? Yeah. You can find several different opinions. I kind of think that when you get to verse 13, but the one who endures to the end, he shall be saved. I think you're, you're starting the leap. You're starting the transition to the eschatological stuff at that point, I think. Okay. Certainly by the time you get, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world for a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come, we've definitely made the leap. Make sense? Yeah. But that's why it was so important last week to look at how, you know, like Daniel described the king of the north, the king of the south, and the king of the north stuff culminated in Antiochus Epiphanes, historically. But then Jesus shows up and says, that's still coming. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then flee. He cast it out into the future, even though it did have a historic fulfillment. Okay, well, I think that's what's happening here in chapter 24, is that there is a historic fulfillment. There is 70 AD. That exists. But there is also this this forecast into the future. And so I think much of what we just read, and I said, I think this applies to the apostles. Uh, you could make the case that some of it has foreshadows. It's already casting a, an image into what's coming into the future. So that's why it's interesting to study and why we can't be absolutely didactic about it. Now, again, when it comes to be, when it happens, we're all going to go, oh, there it is. Of course, my hope is we'll be saying that from heaven, looking down over the railings going, oh, there it is. Just like you said, you go, God. Yeah. Well, okay, so since I just mentioned it, here's verse 15. 
Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, and then Matthew adds parenthetically, let the reader understand. Whenever you see that phrase, that's kind of like, let him who has ears hear. It's one of those phrases where he's saying, okay, this is kind of cryptic, but understand what he's saying. When you see that, then you're going to flee. Okay, we'll get into the fleeing part next week, but let's just look at a couple last things and we'll call it a morning here. Let's start in Daniel 11. Because he did just say, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, he just validated Daniel's prophecy and he said to them, when you see what Daniel predicted, remember he's answering the question, what's going to be the sign of your return in the end of the age? Okay, here's something else you can look for. Look for the abomination of desolation that Daniel mentioned. So, all right, you're probably already there. I'm catching up with you. Daniel 11. And let's start around verse 21. He tells us about this despicable person. In his place, this is that king of the north, king of the south stuff. In his place, a despicable person will arise on whom the honor of the kingship has not been conferred. But he will come in a time of tranquility and he will seize the kingdom by intrigue. Okay, so we're now introduced to this despicable person. Much of what Daniel described right there, Antiochus Epiphanes did do. But then as we continue through chapter 11, it becomes increasingly obvious that he's not just talking about Antiochus. Antiochus is a prefigure of a one to come who in verse 31, we read this. Go down to verse 31. Forces from him will arise and they will desecrate the sanctuary fortresses and do away with the regular sacrifice and they will set up the abomination of desolation. Okay, now we're not real clear in Daniel's writing what the abomination of desolation is. I'm going to show you in a moment that there's plenty of evidence to lead us to believe that it's going to be an idol, much like Nebuchadnezzar set up an idol of himself and said that everybody had to worship the idol. And then you may recall that Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, that they did not worship the idol. And as a consequence, were thrown into the furnace, the burning furnace, and then they didn't burn, which amazed the king. There's three men in the fire. Yeah, there were three men in the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But then when they looked in the fire, there was a fourth, a prefigure of Christ in the fire in there with them which is even more interesting. Okay, so now there is a reference from Daniel that there's going to be something coming when a world ruler, a despicable person rises up. He is going to put the abomination that makes the temple desolate. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes did enter the temple and he did sacrifice pig blood on the temple, which did desecrate the temple. Had the Old Testament stopped right there, we would say, well, Antiochus is the fulfillment of it. But Jesus shows up a couple hundred years after Antiochus and says, when you see, future tense, the abomination of desolation in the temple, then you know that it's time for you to flee. So he takes that abomination of desolation concept and casts it out into the future. One more passage out of Daniel. Go to chapter 12. Let's start in verse 8. Well, gosh, we can't. Let's start at verse 1. We'll just read really fast. 
Well, one of us will read really fast. At that time, this is the time of the end, this is the culmination of all things, at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, your people, who is Daniel's people? Israel. Israel. Okay, so Michael, who stands guard over Israel, he will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. Okay, so that's what Jesus is going to make reference to. There's a time coming such as never was, ever would be again. He's still saying that what Daniel predicted is still to come out in the future. At that time, your people, Israelites, everyone found written in the book will be rescued. Really interesting language, especially when you get into the whole book of life stuff that God has already kept a book. He knows exactly who's going to be saved out of Daniel's people, out of Israel. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Okay, that's exactly like what Ezekiel describes in the Valley of Dry Bones. And then God interprets the Valley of Dry Bones and says, this is the whole house of Israel who I will raise up in the last day. Okay, Daniel confirms the exact same thing. A time is coming when God is going to raise up all Israel up out of the ground for a time of judgment. Many who sleep in the ground, in the dust of the ground, will awake, these to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and to everlasting contempt. And those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel... Conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others were standing, one on the bank of the river and the other on that bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? Same question the apostles are asking. How long until the end? And I heard the man dressed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. How long is that? That's three and a half years. Later in uh, Revelation, that same time span is going to be referred to as 42 months. It's also referred to as 1,260 days. It's very specific how long it is. And as soon as they finish shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed. As for me, I heard, but I could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? He said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. Many will be purged and purified and refined. That's the purpose of the tribulation. Remember I said it's a beating, separating the wheat from the chaff, the dust from the rug. Okay, the purpose of this time of trouble that's coming, such as never was, ever will be again, is for the purpose of purging Israel, purifying and refining it. But the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand, but those who have insight will understand. And from the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished, and the abomination of desolation is set up, there's going to be 1,290 days. Okay, so the setting up of the abomination of desolation in the temple in Jerusalem is a definite mark in time. And from that point, you can start counting 1,290 days. 
But at the same time, Jesus says, when you see that very thing, that mark, you want to know, what's the sign of my coming? What's the sign of the end? Remember that Daniel spoke of the abomination of desolation. When you see the abomination of desolation in the temple, flee. Okay, now this is another indication that he's no longer talking directly to the apostles that he's sitting there on the Mount of Olives with because he now says that when they see the abomination of desolation in the temple, when Titus came and destroyed the temple, there was no abomination of desolation. And Daniel has been told, this is for the time of the end. Seal it up till the time of the end. In fact, he even said it's three and a half years. And then he gave us three and a half years plus a month. In 1,290 days. So from the setting up of whatever this is, this thing that makes the sanctuary of the temple desolate, an abominable thing, from the time that's set up, you can start counting days till the end. And so Jesus makes reference directly to that. Daniel told you, you want to know what the sign of the end is going to be? Watch for the abomination that makes desolate. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. Hurry. Turn to 2 Thessalonians because Paul refers to this same thing. 2 Thessalonians. Are we moving fast enough? We really are nearly done. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Go there. Starting right at verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Good. Now we know what the context is. This is Paul talking about the time of the end, the return of Christ. When Christ returns, comes to get his church. I request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. We'll get to the day of the Lord in the weeks to come, but this is the time of the pouring out of God's wrath, the day of the Lord. It's a phrase that's used throughout the Old Testament. We're going to look at all that. But they apparently were under so much persecution. Their lives were going so difficult at this point that they actually thought that they must be in the day of the Lord. And so Paul says, no, you're not, because there are things that have to happen first. There are signs, just like Jesus talking about the signs of his coming and of the end. Paul picks that up and says there are things that have to happen before the day of the Lord. And if those things haven't happened, pardon me? Such is preaching the gospel all around the world. Such is preaching the gospel all around the world. There are things that have to happen first, so you can't be in the day of the Lord. So don't be quickly shaken from your composure. I also believe, by the way, that this is why Jesus said to his apostles, there's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars, there's going to be nation against nation, there's going to be earthquakes, there's all that stuff, but that's not the end yet. Because people have a tendency to think that whatever they're living through, if it gets real bad, well, this must be it. And both Paul and Jesus warned, no, 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 when it actually comes, you're not going to miss it. You're either going to be in the church and taken off the planet or you're going to see the sign of the return of God coming back in wrath. You won't miss it. So, don't believe anybody if they say the day of the Lord has come. Why? Verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it shall not come unless the... We've talked about this word before, the apostasy. That's just a transliteration of apostasia. The word that means departure comes first. 
and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Okay, that's that evil one that Daniel talked about. What is going to be the sign that he's the one? Well, here's what he does. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Okay, now we're getting an indication of what the abomination of desolation is. That he, this terrible man, is going to set himself up in the temple and make himself an object of worship. You would think that would be the end of it. Not quite. Turn to the book of Revelation one more time and we'll call it a morning. Turn to Revelation chapter 13. In Revelation 13, we are introduced to the beast and the false prophet who I mentioned earlier. And the false prophet is the one who causes people to worship the beast. And we're going to find out that not only does the beast, the Antichrist, set himself up in the temple to be worshipped as God, but that he sets up an idol of himself in the temple to be worshipped as a god. So idol worship is going to take over, and it's going to be an image of himself, but even more miraculous, the image of himself is going to speak. And when it speaks, people are going to bow down and worship it. How many of you have ever been to the Parthenon here in Nashville? When you turn that corner and you walk into the Parthenon and you, you see the giant statue, it's kind of overwhelming, isn't it? I mean, it kind of takes you back a little bit. It makes you feel a little guilty, like, I should not be here. I am worshiping an idol. I should be out of here immediately. You can see where if you walked into a place like that and there was music playing and there was incense burning and there was, I mean, you'd have this sense of awe. You kind of can't help it, right? What if that giant hunk of metal spoke? And it wasn't like a tape recorder buried in her feet or, you know, Nike in her right hand was not a ventriloquist puppet. What, what, if, what if she came to life and spoke? We're all going to be mighty impressed. It's going to be pretty convincing unless you know what the Bible says, which is why Jesus would say, don't let anybody deceive you because the deception is going to be thick. Yes, ma'am. No, not the way it's described. Listen to the description. Chapter 13, let's just start at verse 1. He stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns, seven heads. By the way, horns are symbols of power, and so the Antichrist is referred to as the little horn. There are ten horns, seven heads. That's seven kingdoms. On his horns were seven diadems, seven kings. And over his head were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard. That takes you back to Alexander the Great. His feet were like that of a bear. That takes you to Medo-Persia. And his mouth was like the mouth of a lion. That takes you to Daniel's image of Babylon. And the dragon, that's Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast and they worshipped the dragon. Okay, so now we know worship of the beast is tantamount to worship of Satan because he gave his authority, the dragon gave authority to the beast, to the Antichrist and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast? 
and who is able to wage war against him. And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies, and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. What a surprise. Just like Daniel described, three and a half years. For 42 months he reigned, and he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his temple, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them and authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. I'm just going to say this and prove it to you later because it's going to become important as we continue through Matthew 24. The reference to saints there, don't think church. We instantly go saints, well that's us, we're the church. Think Israel, all that word means is hagios, the separated ones. We've already been introduced in the book of Revelation to the 144,000, the separated ones, the marked ones. Don't think church here. And then, in contrast to the saints who are Israelites, you then have every tribe and people and tongue and nation, all the non-Israelites. Verse 8, and all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the Lamb's book of life. Well, that's good news. We're not going to worship him because our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. But everybody whose name is not in the Lamb's book of life is going to worship the beast and take his mark. The end result being this. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. That ought to resonate with you, with Jesus saying, he that perseveres to the end will be saved. And I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb. Oh, he looks good. He's like a little lamb. In fact, he looks like a messiah. In fact, he's, he's a false prophet. But he looks fine. He looks like he's not in any trouble at all. But you have to listen to what he says because he speaks like a dragon. He speaks for Satan, but he looks good. He looks fine. looks like a lamb. He exercises all the authority of the first beast, the Antichrist, in his presence, which, by the way, means that in chapter 13, we are introduced to this unholy trinity, God being mocked by Satan the same way that Father, Son, and Holy Ghost makes up the Holy Trinity. Here you have Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. He exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he makes the earth and those who dwell on it to worship the first beast, whose fatal wound was healed. And he performs great signs, so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. That's impressive. Be honest. If you saw somebody do that, you're going to pay attention? What if somebody calls down fire from heaven and then says, now listen to what I have to say. When you listen to them, no matter how impressive that sign, you've got to compare it to the word of God. Because he's going to look powerful and he's going to look like a lamb and he's going to look messianic and he's going to do miracles and he's going to speak for the dragon. And you've got to know the difference. Anyway, he performs these great signs so that he even makes fire come down out of heaven to the earth in the presence of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which were given to him to perform in the presence of the beast. Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an idol, an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And there was given to him to give breath 
to the image of the beast? That's the answer to your question, Renee. You said, could it be a computer? Could it be a recording? No, he's going to breathe. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast might even speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. And he causes all, the small, the great, the rich, the poor, the free, the slaves, to be given a mark on their right hand or their forehead. That's where the mark of the beast shows up. Verse 17, and he provides that no one should be able to buy or sell except the one who has the mark of either the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number uh, is a number of a man, and his number is 666. Okay, so set all that to say. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows this man of lawlessness is coming. He knows what he's going to do. He's going to set himself up in the temple, as Paul said, showing himself to be God. Jesus knows that he's going to set up an image of himself and that the false prophet is going to empower that image to even breathe and speak and cause everybody to take a mark. So people are going to be so impressed with these miracles. Wow, fire from... Wow, the image is speaking. Wow, what do you want us to do? Take a mark. Well, people are going to, especially if the impetus is take the mark or die. Take the mark, or you can't buy, sell, trade, you can't do anything. Take the mark. And everybody who takes the mark ends up in the lake of fire, and their torment rises up forever and ever. Don't take the mark. By the way, I don't think we'll be here to see any of this. You were just going to ask if we'd be here. Yeah, We'll get to all that, but I don't think we're going to be here. So I don't think you're going to have to make that choice. Jesus knows all that. So when they said, what's going to be the sign of your coming? He went to all that. You got to be careful when you ask Jesus questions. He might give you the panorama of history. He might reach all the way back to Daniel and then talk about things that are going to happen at the end of the age just to answer the question, when? That's it for this morning. I think that's plenty. Next week, we will see what the result is. Jesus says, now, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, do some things. Next week, we'll start at what are they told to do. Got it? I am talked out. I am done talking. I shudder to ask, are there any questions? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Who's surprised here? No one. Yes, sir. So the the you in verse 15, the bottom that cannot be... Uh, Peter and John and James and Andrew. Right. The you in verse 9, that is to them. Appears to be. But that's why I said we also have to recognize that even as he's speaking to them and saying you, that there is this sort of foreshadow out. But, yeah. Well, how would you define the you in verse 6 when it talks about the wars, the rumors of the wars? So there's multiple wars, there's multiple rumors of war, and yeah. there's nation against nation. Can we apply that you to the latter half of uh, Peter, James, and John, Andrew's lives? Who is that you? Yes, I do think that it fits their lives, and it does apply in their lives. But then I think we can learn from it the same way that I've said oftentimes we have to distinguish between who it's to and who it's for. I think he's applying this to them, but it's for our education, too, to recognize not to get all worked up 
about the wars, the rumors of wars, the nations, the earthquakes, all the stuff that people get so caught up in and say, oh, this must be it. The same way that the Thessalonians in their persecution said, oh, this must be it. Jesus was real specific and said, that's not it. Here's what you need to look for. You need to look for the gospel being preached to the whole world, which the book of Revelation says is going to be done by angels. You need to look for the abomination of desolation. And then he's going to get to, and then the sky is going to be darkened, and you're going to see the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens. That's the real indication of him coming back. The natural disasters, the anger and wars of men, people killing men, the scandals, the hatred, all that. He says, that's not it. Even though it might feel like it or look like it, that's not it. When it happens, you won't miss it. I think that's what he's getting at. So does it apply to them initially? Yeah. Does it teach us going on in the future? Yeah. Does it have both applications? I think so. Remain faithful to the end. Remain faithful to the end. Especially, again, I have to keep emphasizing, though, that really applies to Israel, who will be here during the time of trouble, the time of refining and purification. Daniel says those that are written in the book will be saved, but the others are are not, and are going to go into the wars, the tortures, the problems. And so there is a physical, genuine endurance to the end that Jesus is speaking about. Whereas with the church, we endure to the end of our lives. We hang on to our faith through the troubles and trials of life. But I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about here contextually. He was saying there's a time coming for Israel where there's going to be a remnant that endures to the end. A very physical reality. Yeah? Make sense? Anything else? You're good? Well, then I think we're good as a group. So happy birthday to you. you got a bunch of them in there. Okay, are you real tired of sitting? That was a really long morning. And we went a little longer than I meant to, but there were so many pieces I wanted to tie together. So there. All right, say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.